This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today, I have the special pleasure of introducing uh, Charles McCurdy. I'll say three or four things about him. First, uh, we're at the University of California, Berkeley, and we're very happy to say that our speaker today is a graduate of the University of California at San Diego. And he went on and did his doctorate at the University of California at San Diego. And then, not being the purist that I thought he might be, he didn't stay for postdoctoral work there. He went to Yale for Yale Law School, where he was in a very famous program uh, that was run by Stanton Wheeler at the Yale Law School uh, on law and society studies. And then he went on to the University of Virginia, where he has been teaching for close to 40 years. And he has has a remarkable, wonderful reputation for undergraduate, PhD, and law teaching. And he's a professor of law and of history at that institution. And um, he is renowned in the profession of legal history and constitutional history, not only for his own wonderful work, but for the way he has trained so well so many students possibly more than any other individual directing Ph.D. programs in America. I think that's, that's, actu- that's an accurate statement. If not, he's certainly way up there in numbers and certainly very far up there in the distinction of those who work with him. <clears throat> uh, the last thing I should speak of is his scholarship. It's, uh, he has a remarkable record. Uh, his early work was on Stephen J. Field, the conservative California Justice, who went on to Washington to become, for a long period of decades, uh, a key member of a court that was moving more and more toward a conservative, anti-regulatory, pro-business position. And for historically, Field had been seen as a knee-jerk conservative who just gave business community what he what it wanted. But uh, Charles McCurdy's work changed that picture radically um, and gave a much more complete picture of what judicial conservatism, conservatism was like in the late 19th century in the large. And it was a much more complicated phenomenon. And nobody in the field has been able to write the way people were writing back in the 60s about that court or about judicial conservatism. And it's largely, if not to say exclusively, is the result of his early work. And I, he moved from that into larger studies, studies on a larger canvas, of uh, property law, antitrust, the police power, uh, and uh, taxation. And in general, uh, one can say, as he's described, as he's described in, in, in the publicity that came for this lecture, he's been interested in the relationship of ideology, economic change, and political movements, and has given us a very rich picture of the dynamics of change in the legal system as a working system, as well as in what we call the law, the narrower sense of jurisprudence and uh, theory you know, in the courts. And he, um, among his many publications, he has continued to publish over the years on Stephen Field. Um, he did a, another path-breaking work on Field's jurisprudence on the California court, which really made us all think very differently about property law, because he found and described brilliantly how the court was allocating property rights and playing a role in setting priorities among mining, agriculture, commerce, and other sectors. 
So again, it's a terrific legacy in the study of American legal and constitutional history that he's left, and he did more than anyone, I think, to open up the field in a very new, rich way of California law historically. Um, he then turned east and did a study of the anti-rent movement in New York, which was uh, a similar uh, kind of study in terms of looking at a very radical ideology that concerned property rights and the inheritance of the inheritance in uh, an area of upstate New York of essentially medieval tax claims uh, on serv servitude claims on the land, and there was a very dramatic uprising, and he, he, he wrote a really big book, a very big book, on all the aspects of this in the way I've just discussed, sorry, in the way I've just discussed, and it was richly rewarded because every three years uh, a prize called the uh, Order of the Coif Prize is given for the best book in law over a three-year period, and he and another historian shared that prize. Uh, when you think of the outpouring of books and the frenzy over originalism, and all the rest that's gone on in recent years. This was a, a wonderful achievement, and everyone in the field of legal and constitutional history uh, is indebted to him for having conquered all the prejudices of a conservative bar <laughs> in recognizing the importance of this kind of scholarship. So welcome back to the University of California, especially to Berkeley, Charles, where you taught for a semester to the benefit of our students. He actually taught my courses. They didn't want me back. Students wanted to just have him stay. And um, it's just good to have you back, and we look forward to your lecture, uh, which is on America's first war on terror, Jeffersonian period, uh, appropriately enough, and concerning constitutional debate of the Alien and Sedition Acts. Professor McCurdy. Well, thank you uh, very much for that warm uh, introduction. Uh, he uh, didn't, didn't say uh, what's probably the the most important connection between us. Uh, he directed my PhD dissertation at the University of California, San Diego uh, in 1966 and has been a shameless uh, promoter of my career ever since. Uh, and I am uh, forever grateful to him uh, for that and for also whatever part he played. Uh, I know others that I know, Waldo Martin were on the, uh, on the committee. And um, this, uh, this place has always been regarded by me, a native Californian, I grew up in Pasadena, as the mecca of academic life, uh, the mecca of, of learning and scholarship uh, in, the, uh, in the whole country. And to come back uh, under these auspices today is, uh, well, it's very exciting. <clears throat> During the first decade of governance under the Constitution of the United States, the young republic uh, confronted a, a foreign policy crisis that fractured the body politic and produced an age of political violence in America as well as in Europe. The reign of terror in revolutionary France sparked the crisis, and the ensuing wars of the French Revolution, which lasted from 1793 to 1815, sustained the crisis. President George Washington issued a neutrality proclamation in April of 1793. <clears throat> but the American people were not neutral. Federalists dis despised the godless bedlam in Paris and prayed for fervently for a British victory over French 
anarchy. <clears throat> as feelings heightened, <clears throat> Republicans were just as uh, attached uh, to the cause of revolutionary France. <clears throat> and as feelings heightened, the partisan language of politically active Americans <clears throat> grew increasingly strident and extreme. <clears throat> One theme common to everyone's talk was the fragility of republics in a hostile world. <clears throat> and so Republicans described the Federalists in power not only as Anglophiles, but also as monarchists or monocrats who intended to subvert the Republican, uh, the Republican state of liberty, uh, not only in America, but everywhere in the world. <clears throat> Fantastic motives were ascribed to every Federalist initiative in the Congress and in Atlantic diplomacy. Federalists responded in kind. They not only denounced the Jacobin members of the Republican opposition, but also insisted, often and vehemently, that political opposition, when concerted and organized, was equivalent to subversion. And this was especially true if it were orchestrated by a foreign power. And as the nation inched toward what we now call the quasi-war with France in 1798, a Congress, uh, c Congress um, translated into law the, the uh, Federalist claim that Republican opposition had put the very Republic in peril. <clears throat> and so they passed the Sedition Act, which is the heart of my lecture today. <clears throat> the Sedition Act made it a federal crime, and I quote, to write, publish, utter, or print any false, scandalous, and malicious writing against the United States or the President of the United States or either House of the Congress of the United States with the intent to excite against them the hatred of the good people of the United States or to stir up sedition among them. <clears throat> now, the Sedition Act has the dubious distinction <clears throat> of being the only statute enacted by Congress in the 18th century to be declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of the United States in the 20th century. <clears throat> In a case called New York Times and Sullivan, decided in 1964, Justice William Brennan performed the deed and there established what he called the central meaning of the First Amendment. The central meaning of the First Amendment, he said, as he declared that old statute unconstitutional, he said that central meaning was that debate on public issues should be uninhibited, robust, and wide open, and it may well, it may well be uh, that it, what will be included are vehement, caustic, and sometimes unpleasantly sharp attacks on government and public officials. <clears throat> now, at first glance, at least, Brennan's description of the central meaning of the First Amendment in 1965 sounds very much like John Adams' defense of free government in his dissertation on the canon and feudal law published in 1765. <clears throat> Behind Parliament's claim to tax the inhabitants of the British colonies, Adams wrote, during the Stamp Act crisis of 1765, lay the divine, miraculous origin of government with which the priesthood had enveloped the feudal monarch in clouds and mysteries. <clears throat> but things, said Adams, had always been different in Massachusetts. Its government was founded on knowledge generally diffused through the whole body of the people. <clears throat> Let every sluice of knowledge be opened and aflowing, said Adams in 1765, let us dare to think and speak and think and write. I said think twice. One of them was read. Let us dare to read and think and speak 
and right. <clears throat> the, irony, the irony, of course, is that in 1798, President John Adams signed the Sedition Act into law. <clears throat> and there's more. <clears throat> Neither Adams nor the House and the Senate majorities who voted for it or the Supreme Court justices <clears throat> who sustained it against constitutional attack 13 different times between 1798 and 1801 doubted the competence of Congress to make seditious libel a federal crime. <clears throat> In their view, the Sedition Act was fully warranted by the Constitution of the United States. <clears throat> now, describing how Adams and the Federalists reached this conclusion is my first task in this lecture. <clears throat> Three components of the Federalist argument require attention. First, the Federalists had an argument about the scope of the First Amendment's guarantee of a free press. Second, the Federalists had an argument about the inherent powers of the national government. And third, the Federalists had an argument about the coextensive relationship between the federal legislative power and the federal judicial power. <clears throat> now, as I reconstruct this Federalist view, I hope that you will be impressed <clears throat> by its logical co coherence, even if you aren't persuaded by the arguments uh, themselves. <clears throat> My second task is to account for the nature and scope of the Republican critique of the Sedition Act, culminating in the famous Virginia and Kentucky resolutions of 1798, and two years later in Thomas Jefferson's victory over Adams in the election of 1800, a victory that uh, Jefferson never ceased to call the Revolution of 1800. <clears throat> It follows that my third task is to describe the ramifications of that revolution of 1800 for American constitutional politics, and specifically for the freedom of the press, for the Federalist doctrine of inherent powers, and for the Federalist idea of coextensive legislative and judicial power. In other words, I need to explain whether the election of 1800 generated a constitutional revolution as well as a political revolution, and if it did, just how extensive or how limited of these constitutional changes turned out to be. Now, along this route, it's my intention to establish some larger claims about constitutional thought, constitutional practice, and constitutional change in the in United States history. But you'll have to be patient. Historians have a penchant for telling stories that move from the particular to the general, rather than the general and political <coughs> and the particular. Uh, and uh, history has been uh, my principal uh, discipline for as long as I can remember. <clears throat> so the Federalist argument on freedom of uh, the press. <clears throat> For Adams and his friends, the Sedition Act did not abridge, as the First Amendment says it must not, freedom of the press at all. Because at common law, the freedom of the press had been understood for more than a century as the right to publish without prior censorship by government officials. Prior restraint of publication was forbidden. But freedom of the press did not entail immunity from subsequent prosecution for licentious, seditious, or subversive words that excited the people and inclined them to subvert the authority or rule of duly constituted public officials. In other words, the Federalists subscribed to what we now call the Leonard Levy thesis, named for the great civil libertarian and uh, historian of American law who recovered uh, and reconstructed the Federalist argument about freedom of the press uh, in the early 1960s. 
Levy pointed out that there was little or no evidence suggesting that the framers of the Constitution's free press clause intended to supersede the common law, and he insisted that there were substantial evidence that they did not, did not intend to do so. In Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, for example, there had been successful prosecutions for seditious libel in the state courts as late as 1791, despite the guarantee of a free press in the constitutions of Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. Everywhere in revolutionary America, uh, Levy maintained, the noisiest defenders of a free press asked only that the principles advocated in the famous trial of John Peter Zenger in early 19th, 18th century New York uh, be uh, fulfilled and uh, followed. That is, those principles were truth as a good defense in all actions of seditious libel and the jury's right, not just its latent power, to make determinations of law as well as fact in all trials for seditious libel. And during the 1790s, there'd been some movement in that direction. The legislature of Pennsylvania incorporated the Zenger principles into its statute law in 1790. Kentucky and Delaware followed suit in 1792. <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson, we finally got him in. <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson had embraced a qualified Zenger position in the draft of the Virginia Constitution, which he, which he uh, 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 proposed in 1783. Here's what Jefferson wrote. This is his free press clause. <clears throat> Printing presses shall be subject to no other restraint than libelness to legal prosecution for falsehoods printed and published. <clears throat> now, 15 years later, Adams and the Federalists went further than Jefferson had dared to go in 1783. <clears throat> the Sedition Act of 1798 expressly provided that truth would be a permissible defense in a prosecution under the statute, and it provided that the jury would have control over both law and fact in all trials under the Sedition Act. <clears throat> the Sedition Act, said uh, uh, Leonard, uh, Leonard Levy, paraphrasing Gilbert and Sullivan, was, quote, the true embodiment of everything excellent. It was, that is, it was the very epitome of libertarian thought in 1798. <clears throat> Now, claiming that the Sedition Act did not violate the First Amendment, as the Federalists did, was not to establish that it was constitutional. <clears throat> Adams and his friends had to show that Congress was competent to enact it, even though Article I of the Constitution did not and does not enumerate a power to regulate the press, whether to protect national security or for any other purpose. <clears throat> But the Federalists were, um, were good lawyers, and there were two interlocking arguments at hand for them to bootstrap into a claim that Congress could enact this, this statute. The first had been pioneered by James Wilson, a great Federalist who ends up being on, in the federal judiciary in the 1790s, uh, James Wilson of Pennsylvania. Now, in 1781, yeah, he pioneered it all the way back under the Articles of Confederation, in 1781, shortly before Congress voted to charter the Bank of North America, Wilson rose to contest the claim that Congress had no power to pass such a law because no clause of the Articles of Confederation authorized Congress to create corporations, and, besides, the Articles of Confederation stipulated that, quote, each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by the Confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. So Wilson faced what seemed to be a, 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 a double whammy. 
<clears throat> there was no enumerated power for Congress to create a bank, and the Constitution or Articles of Confederation had a, something like the Tenth Amendment, only it said expressly. <clears throat> well, Wilson had no problem claiming that the bank was constitutional. The article just quoted from the Articles of Confederation, he swept aside as entirely irrelevant to the question, because inasmuch as no state could exercise any power or act of sovereignty extending over all the other states, or any of them, it followed that the power to incorporate a bank commensurate to the United States was not an act or of sovereignty or a power which by the second article must expressly be delegated to Congress by that body. In other words, since none of the states could create a national bank, the reserve powers of the states weren't affected by the fact that the Congress might be able to charter one. To many purposes, he said, the United States are to be considered as one undivided nation and is possessed of all the rights and power and properties by the law of nations incident to such. It followed, he said, and again I'm quoting, that whenever an object occurs to the direction of which no particular state is competent, the management of, of it must necessarily belong to the United States in Congress assembled. <clears throat> now, applying Wilson's reasoning to the sedition question was a cinch, and one Federalist statesman after another did so on the floor of Congress and in the pamphlet war that followed uh, the introduction and passage of the Sedition Act of 1798. <clears throat> That's because the law of nations is the law of nature applied to political states, and the first law of nature is a right of self-preservation. <clears throat> and self-preservation, it was said, required the suppression of sedition, which undermined the people's confidence in their government by vilifying public servants or condemning their acts. Finally, no particular state had jurisdiction over sedition against the United States or against United States officials. So just as murder on the high seas was of necessity <clears throat> a question for United States law and United States courts, so was sedition against the United States. In each instance, Congress exercised powers or properties that were incident to national states by the law of nations. And in each instance, Federalists argued, national action did not encroach on any right, sovereignty, or power reserved to the states. Now, these are the essential elements of the inherent powers doctrine. <clears throat> now, the Federalists offered one more argument <clears throat> to reinforce the doctrine of, of uh, inherent powers. <clears throat> this was drawn from Federalist number 80, <clears throat> the Federalist Papers, from Publius's 80th number, written by Alexander Hamilton in 1788. If there are such things as political axioms, Hamilton wrote, the propriety of the judicial power of a government being coextensive with its legislative may be ranked among the number. <clears throat> so what's this coextensive power concept? It means that if Congress had jurisdiction to establish an offense, the federal courts must have jurisdiction to try the offense and <clears throat> to up enforce the penalty. <clears throat> By the same token, if the federal courts had jurisdiction to hold a trial and to enforce a penalty, then Congress must have jurisdiction to abrogate the offense or to modify it and to fix a new and different penalty. <clears throat> Judicial power and legislative power went the maxim, maxim or axiom, said Hamilton, had to be coextensive. <clears throat> 
Now, Section 11 of the Judiciary Act of 1789, uh, which uh, created uh, the rules and procedures and structures of the uh, federal judiciary, Section 11 clothed the federal courts with jurisdiction over all offenses that were, quote, cognizable by the United States of America. Cognizable. So what sorts of offenses had been cognizable, that is, subject to federal jurisdiction, when Congress passed the Sedition Act in 1798? One class of federal crimes included acts that had been prohibited by federal statutes. These included bribery of United States customs collectors, counterfeiting United States bonds, and murder on the high seas. But a second equally important class of cognizable federal offenses included all kinds of common law crimes that Congress had not forbidden but were not cognizable in the courts of any particular state. So, in the United States Circuit uh, Circuit Court for Pennsylvania, a guy named Gideon Henfeld uh, was indicted at common law for joining a a French privateering expedition in violation of President Washington's neutrality proclamation. A diplomatic official from Genoa was tried and convicted at common law for sending threatening letters to the British minister with a view to extortion. And a Philadelphia businessman was tried and convicted at common law for attempting to bribe the United States Commissioner of Revenue into awarding him a contract for the construction of a lighthouse on Delaware Bay. Nor was that all. Three different United States circuit courts handed down indictments at common law for seditious libel before the Sedition Act became law. Samuel J. Cabell, which is the building I teach in at University of Virginia, is named for him, Cabell Hall. Samuel J. Cabell, who was Jefferson's congressman, a congressman from Charlottesville, he was indicted by the feds in Richmond, 1797. Benjamin Bache, editor of a newspaper called the Aurora, was indicted by the feds in Philadelphia in 1797. And John Daly Burke, editor of, of, a, of a journal called the Timepiece, was indicted by the feds uh, in New York City. <clears throat> the reasoning of these indictments was, since federal courts had jurisdiction of such offenses at common law, and Congress's powers were coextensive with the federal judiciaries, Congress certainly had the power to enact a statute that defined the crime with greater precision and enlarged the rights available to defendants at common law. And this is precisely what the Sedition Act of 1798 achieved. Section 1 defined the offense, Section 2 made truth a good defense, and authorized the jury to consider questions of law as well as questions of fact when deliberating on their verdict. Now I've said that the inherent powers argument and the coextensive powers argument had an interlocking quality. And this is because the power claimed for Congress by Wilson and for the federal courts in the common law crime cases had the same foundation and the same built-in limitation on federal power. The foundation was the idea that pre-existing bodies of law the law of nations in the one instance, the Wilson argument, and the common law in the other, the common law crimes argument, legitimated action by government authorities. And the built-in limitation was that the idea that Congress and or the federal courts could legitimately, legitimately claim jurisdiction to act if and only if the subject matter at issue was beyond the purview of the several states 
or any one of the several states. <clears throat> Federalists seem to have taken for granted the resulting constraints on the constructive amplification of national power arising from the doctrines of inherent limp powers and the doctrine of coextensive powers. <clears throat> one thing, however, is certain, and that is that Jefferson and the Republicans either did not grasp the Federalist position or they deliberately distorted it in the rancorous constitutional controversy that generated uh, the Revolution of 1800. <clears throat> now, the campaign against the Sedition Act began at the moment the bill was introduced in the House of Representatives. The alarm was sounded, of course, by Thomas Jefferson, the Vice President of the United States, as well as the Republican Party's acknowledged leader. <clears throat> if this goes down, he wrote, Sounds very 21st century. If this goes down, we shall immediately see attempted another act of Congress declaring that the president shall continue in office for life, reserving to another occasion the transfer of the succession to his heir and the establishment of the Senate for life. <clears throat> Was Jefferson serious? Could monarchy be established under our Constitution by the amplification of Congress's granted powers and the nature of federal jurisdiction? Well, Jefferson apparently thought so. I think he exaggerated a bit, though. Uh, if in 1798 anything seemed possible with a mode of constitutional construction grounded on the law of nations and the English common law, both of which presuppose the legitimacy of both monarchy and aristocracy. <clears throat> Now, James Madison was ordinarily less impulsive than his Virginia partner in politics and more inclined to use circumspect language. Still, the fourth Virginia Resolution of 1798 relied on the same slippery slope and the same destination posited by Jefferson. Here's what Madison said. He said, he wrote, that the General Assembly expressed deep regret that indications have appeared of a design to destroy the meaning and effect of the particular enumeration and to consolidate the states by degrees into one sovereignty, the obvious tendency and inevitable result of which would be to transform the present Republican system of the United States into an absolute, or at best, a mixed monarchy. That's James Madison. <clears throat> Jefferson and Madison had been down this road before. In 1791, they stood arm in arm against consolidation during the bank debate, and they'd lost. But this time, the chances of victory seemed much greater. They were up against John Adams instead of George Washington. <clears throat> what is more, Federalist arguments about inherent powers and coextensive powers seem much more vulnerable than Alexander Hamilton's artful deployment of the necessary and proper clause in the bank controversy. Consequently, the Republicans assailed from the very outset, first, the notion that Congress could exercise anything so fuzzy as inherent powers. They assailed the idea that the Constitution authorized federal courts to adjudicate criminal cases at common law, and they insisted that Federalist claims to the contrary put the very federal structure of the Union into jeopardy. <clears throat> now, the outstanding per uh, Republican performance in this vein was Madison's in his famous 1800 report to the Virginia legislature. Article I of the Constitution, which enumerated powers of Congress, he wrote, was logically incompatible with the notion that the common law was part of federal law. Because the authority of Congress 
was necessarily coextensive with the federal judiciary. So he accepted the premise of, of coextensive powers <clears throat> to hold that federal courts had cognizance of matters as vast and <clears throat> multifarious as those in the common law would invariably overspread the entire field of legislation and sap the foundation of the Constitution as a system of limited and specified powers. <clears throat> Madison saw the common law as a lever for Congress to enact statutes on all matters whatsoever. <clears throat> now, the principle of states' rights cut a much larger figure in the Republican appeal of 1798-1800 than did the First Amendment. <clears throat> Still, the Sedition Act brought the relationship between free government and a free press into sharper focus than ever before, a focus that produced what Leonard Levy called a new libertarianism. <clears throat> now, the major premise of the new libertarianism was that the common law of seditious libel was incompatible with the republican form of government. Pamphlets by George Hay and Tudus Wortman, a couple of fellows from New York City, pointed out the common law had developed in a nation where the legitimacy of public authority flowed from a compact between the ruler and the ruled, between the sovereign and the people. In England, the crime of seditious libel protected the authority, dignity, and exalted position of the sovereign. But such an offense made no sense, they argued, in the United States, because here sovereignty resided in the people themselves, and public officials were rightfully regarded as the mere servants of their Republican masters. <clears throat> Madison grasped this claim and turned it brilliantly to Republican advantage in the Virginia report in the spring of 1800. <clears throat> the people, not the government, he wrote, possessed the absolute sovereignty in America, and it followed that rights here are secured by not by laws paramount to prerogative, but by constitutions paramount to laws. It followed that the American idea of a free press was very different from that postulated in the common law. The crabbed doctrine of no prior restraint, said Madison, can never be admitted in a republic since a law inflicting penalties on printed publications would have a similar effect with a law authorizing a previous restraint on them. It would seem a mockery to say that no law should be passed preventing publications from being made, but that laws might be passed for punishing them in case they should be made. Thus were born two observations that figured prominently in the First Amer Amendment jurisprudence of William Brennan uh, and the case of New York Times uh, and Sullivan in particular. The idea that libel law has a tendency to follow self-censorship and the resulting chilling effect on the free press, on free expression, is incompatible with the Republican form of government. <clears throat> now, the Sedition Act contained a sunset clause, <clears throat> which means that this lecture will eventually get to a sunset. <clears throat> it expired by the Act's own terms on March the 3rd, 1801. <clears throat> 24 hours later, Thomas Jefferson was inaugurated as the third president of the United States. <clears throat> Jefferson said nothing about the sedition question in his inaugural address, choosing instead to hold out an olive branch to the Federalists <clears throat> with the famous quote, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. <clears throat> but soon afterward, Jefferson pardoned all those who had been convicted under the Sedition Act and quietly dismissed uh, the prosecution still pending against journalist, uh, Republican journalist uh, James Duane. I discharged every person under punishment or prosecution under the Sedition Act, Jefferson wrote a friend shortly afterward, because I considered 
and now consider that law to be a nullity, as absolute and palpable a nullity as if Congress had ordered us all to fall down and worship a golden image, and that it was as much my duty to arrest its execution as it would have been to rescue from the fiery furnace those that should have been cast into it for refusing to worship the image. <clears throat> End of quote. Yet for all this, the revolution of 1800 did not necessarily mean the end of trials for sedition. <clears throat> Except for the new libertarians, who were a distinct minority in the party, Republicans had condemned the Sedition Act primarily on states' rights grounds. And Jefferson himself, in an 1804 letter to Abigail Adams, flatly stated, and I quote, While we deny that Congress have a right to control the freedom of the press, we have ever asserted the right of the states and their exclusive right to do so. So was it possible that the Revolution of 1800 would mean nothing more than Republican prosecution of Federalists as a matter of state law in state courts? And what about the possibility of prosecuting Federalists for seditious libel at common law in the federal courts? The Sedition Act had expired, but federal jurisdiction over common law crimes cognizable by the United States, though much contested during the campaign of 1800, remained a live issue in our law of the federal courts and the federal system. <clears throat> now, answers to these questions came in due course, though often with a surprising cast of characters, a surprising plot, or a surprising denouement. Consider first the resolution of the free, quest, free press question in the state courts. <clears throat> Ironically, the leading case pitted Federalist libertarians against Jeffersonian stand-patters on the common law of seditious libel. <clears throat> When Jefferson became president, his most powerful ally in New York was Governor George Clinton. And in 1803, Clinton's administration obtained a common law indictment against Harry Crosswell, editor of an upstate newspaper called The Wasp. <clears throat> Crosswell's crime was an accusation that Thomas Jefferson, while serving as vice president, had paid another journalist named James Callender to denounce George Washington as a traitor and a robber and a perjurer, and John Adams as a hoary-headed incendiary. <clears throat> In point of fact, the accusation for which Crosswell had been indicted was true. James Callender was on Thomas Jefferson's payroll, in 1798 and 1799, when Callender wrote those things in his newspaper. <clears throat> Nevertheless, the New York trial court refused to allow the defendant to subpoena witnesses who could have established the truth of the words, and Chief Justice Morgan Lewis, who presided at the trial and was a leading Republican who would end up succeeding George Clinton as governor of New York, he instructed the jury that at common law, truth was not a good defense in an action of seditious libel such that in New York, at least, freedom of the press was still defined as the absence of prior restraint. And the jury, after hearing that charge, convicted Mr. Crosswell. <clears throat> now, on appeal to the New York's uh, highest court, Crosswell was represented by Alexander Hamilton. <clears throat> in vain did the great Federalist leader urge the court to grant Crosswell a new trial in the defense of truth, so that the people could, might know whether President Jefferson had been guilty of what Hamilton called the foul act of uh, libeling uh, President George Washington. <clears throat> Hamilton maintained that freedom of the press, rightly understood at common law, quote, consists in the right to publish with impunity, with good motives and for justifiable ends, though badly reflecting on government, the magistracy, 
or particular individuals. Without proof of the defendant's actual malice, not his presumed malice, said Hamilton, the journalist's statements merited protection from the state constitution's guarantee of a free press. Well, it turns out that Hamilton lost the battle but won the war. The two Republican judges rejected his argument. James Kent, a prominent Federalist, and Smith Thompson, a former uh, Federalist, a a former student of Kent's, voted for a new trial. So, the conviction was sustained by an equally divided court. <clears throat> but in 1805, the New York legislature settled the matter by enacting a statute providing that, <clears throat> that, that every state in the Union soon emulated in one way or another. This statute, the New York Act of 1805, shifted the burden of proof and actions of seditious libel so that it became the state's obligation not only to prove that the material was false, but also to prove that it had not been published for good reasons and justifiable ends. And by this tortuous path, the new libertarianism produced by the Sedition Act of 1798 finally got translated into effective protection of press freedom as a matter of state law. In fact, the resulting legal regime lasted until the civil rights era generated new challenges and a new doctrinal response to preserve what Brennan called the central meeting of the First Amendment. What then about federal prosecutions for sedition at common law? <clears throat> the Supreme Court considered this question in the remarkable case of United States versus Hudson and Goodwin, decided in 1811. <clears throat> at issue was the indictment of two Hartford, Connecticut newspaper men who had published an article accusing Congress of secretly appropriating $2 million at the request of President Jefferson as a bribe of Napoleon. Upon a division of the trial judges over whether the United States Circuit Court had jurisdiction, the case was certified to the Supreme Court. And President Madison, Jefferson's successor, declined to defend the indictment with either a government brief or a government defense of the prosecution in oral argument. And so the result was predictable. Justice William Johnson, a Jefferson appointee, dismissed the indictment and held that federal courts did not have jurisdiction over crimes at common law. Now, the decision in this case, Hudson and Goodwin, was extraordinary all the same. It was remarkable first because of the way Justice Johnson justified the result. Although this question is brought up now for the first time to be decided by this court, he said, we consider it as having been long since settled in public opinion. I don't think the court said that in a long time that this question had been decided in public opinion. It had been settled, in other words, by the political upheaval that Jefferson called the Revolution of 1800. But that's not all the only reason Hudson and Goodwin was remarkable. It was remarkable for still another reason. In their campaign against the Sedition Act, Republicans had denounced the concept of a federal common law because it provided a lever when fused with Hamilton's coextensive powers doctrine for the constructive amplification of the powers of Congress. They made an argument, in other words, about federalism. The New Libertarians, on the other hand, had denounced the concept of a federal common law because it provided a means for government to do what it had no business of doing, of deploying the criminal law to subvert freedom of the press and hence the sovereignty of the, of the people, the first principle of republicanism. They made a, an argument about individual rights. But in Hudson and Goodwin, Justice Johnson did not breathe a word about rights or a word about federalism. The court's holding hinged on public opinion in the first instance and ultimately 
on the separation of powers. The legislative authority of the union must first make an act of crime, affix a punishment to it, and declare that the court shall have jurisdiction of the offense, said Justice Johnson for the court, before it could become cognizable in federal courts. Now, the problem with this sweeping holding was that there were a great many offenses over which no state court had jurisdiction that now could not be punished in the federal courts unless Congress had acted. And Congress had other, more important things to do than specifying with precision the scope of the federal criminal law. Could somebody get away with arson, bribery, extortion, or grand theft committed on the high seas? or at federal installations such as Navy Yards, post offices, lighthouses, and the United States Mint. The impossibility of such a thing had been at the foundation of the Federalist argument concerning the federal common law of crimes and for the closely related argument, pioneered by James Wilson, for the inherent powers of Congress. And it came home to roost in the great case of United States and Coolidge. An issue in the Coolidge case was an event that occurred during the War of 1812. American privateers, holding a letter of mark, authorizing them to seize enemy shipping, holding a letter of mark from President Madison, seized a British vessel in the North Atlantic and started for an American port where the vessel could be libeled as a prize. They didn't make it home with their prize. Because a second American vessel, Captain by the defendant, Coolidge, seized the British ship in open water and beat the American privateers to port. And so in 1813, the United States attorney for Massachusetts indicted Coolidge at common law for grand theft ship on the high seas. <clears throat> he had to be indicted in federal court because no state had jurisdiction over a crime that occurred on the high seas. And so Justice Joseph Story, a Madison appointee, believed that in this instance, the Federalist argument about inherent federal jurisdiction was sound. And so he voted to sustain the indictment. But his colleague, another Republican appointee, District Judge John Davis, did not agree, and nor did the Supreme Court, which heard Coolidge on the resulting certificate of division in 1817. Justice Johnson again spoke for the court, and he stuck to his guns. Offenses at common law did not exist in the courts of the United States, he flatly stated, and as a result, Coolidge walked. His unmerited liberty was also a consequence of the Revolution of 1800. What then about the Federalist doctrine of inherent powers? The claim that certain powers that had not been enumerated in the Constitution, but which could not possibly be exercised by the several states or any of them, in which the law of nations established as incident to all national states necessarily belonged to the Congress of the United States. What happened to that Federalist principle? Well, the answer, of course, is that the Republicans invoked that very principle in support of their power to acquire Louisiana in 1803. Robert Livingston of New York, who negotiated the Treaty of Session with France, denounced the doctrine of inherent powers in 1798, but broadcast it widely in support of his treaty in 1803. A great many other Republicans, leading Republicans, made the exact same conceptual somersault uh, between the one event and the other. Jefferson's views were more complicated. At the very outset of the Louisiana Treaty, he presumed that a constitutional amendment could and should be adopted that expressly authorized the purchase of territory from another national state. Let us not make blank paper by construction, 
he wrote one Republican associate, let us, uh, our peculiar security is in the possession of a written constitution. But as the year 1803 wore on, Jefferson changed his tune. And in a fascinating letter to Wilson Carey Nicholas, the junior member of the Senate from Virginia, Jefferson confessed that while he thought it important to set an example against broad construction by appealing for new power from the people, he was prepared to accept the treaty without a constitutional amendment. The good sense of the country, he said, will correct the evil of construction when it shall produce evil effects. But this evil construction was producing wonderful, wonderful effects. This was the first time in American history when a professed strict constructionist allowed reasons of state to trump his own constitutional first principles. And it would not be the last. Now, Republicans always regarded the acquisition of new territory, whether by purchase or annexation, as an exception the salutary principle of strict construction generally and opposition to the Federalist doctrine of inherent powers in particular. In their judgment, the robust form of inherent powers doctrine had been exploded by the Revolution of 1800. But in the aftermath of the Civil War, an entire generation of jurists shared the impulse to extirpate from American constitutional law every corollary of antebellum Southern rights theory, much of which Uh, was traceable to the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions of 1798. They were also inclined to confirm the national government's authority to exercise every power, whether enumerated or not, that was necessary to maintain its very existence. And the result was a revival of inherent powers doctrine. The revival climaxed in the Supreme Court's 1889 decision upholding the Chinese Exclusion Act where Justice Stephen Field, speaking for unanimous court, explained that it didn't matter that the Constitution did not enumerate a power of Congress to control the nation's borders or to enumerate a power to determine what persons should be denied entry to the United States and what persons should be admitted. These powers, said Field, are inherent in the national government. In support of the court's ruling, Field invoked every single reason that James Wilson had invoked in the bank debate of 1781 and the Federalists had invoked in the Sedition Act debate of 1798. Field might have added, though he didn't, that in in America, constitutional revolutions sometimes do go backward. Time has come for me to conclude. The stories I have told about the Sedition Act of 1798 and the ramifications of Jefferson's victory in the election of 1800 establish at least two general propositions about constitutional politics and constitutional change in American history. First, constitutional change rarely begins in the Supreme Court. Political movements, often grounded in distinctive constellations of constitutional thought, shape what public officials do and why they do it. Even public opinion, that most elusive thing, modifies what the Constitution means from time to time. This is because constitutional law is in part a function of constitutional practice, which in turn reflects and reproduces the conventions of constitutional thought established by dominant political coalitions. Second, the process of constitutional change seldom conforms to the ideal typology lawyers and political scientists tend to use in analyzing American constitutional law. No offense, Bob. <clears throat> it is often said <clears throat> that the 
basic building blocks of constitutionalism in America are protection of individual rights, the division of authority between the national government and the several state governments, and the separation of legislative, executive, and judicial functions. And so they are. But when constitutional claims are contested across the board, as they were in the Sedition Act controversy, every domain of constitutional law is eventually implicated. It may take two or three decades or more for courts and commentators to work out every implication of the constitutional upheaval at hand, and in some instances, the process of consolidating the results of one upheaval may not have been completed before the next upheaval begins. All this is to say that American constitutional law has always been relatively contingent on circumstances, so much so that doctrines presumed to be exploded at one point in time have made unexpected comebacks at other points in time. Woodrow Wilson, another statesman from my adopted state of Virginia, once made a similar observation with a phrase that still seems exactly right. The Constitution of the United States is not a mere lawyer's document, he said. It is a vehicle of life and its spirit is always the spirit of the age. Thanks for your patience. Well, thank you very much. That's a a wonderful talk. And uh, I'm happy to say that Professor McCurdy is going to take some questions. Thank you. Um, So two requests for you to say a little more. Um, I'm interested in what happens uh, to the relationship between the federal courts and common law um, as the nation grows. And I also wonder if you could say a little more about this, um, what seems like a rediscovery of the Republican tradition um, for Brennan um, and other judges during the 1960s. The first question is, what happened to the relationship between the common law uh, and... uh, and the federal government's power to prosecute crime in the aftermath of the Sedition Act controversy, which in turn generated that crazy case of Coolidge where the grand theft ship guy walked, right? If you remember that the the, uh, Supreme Court justice on circuit in that case was Joseph Story, and Joseph Story spent the next eight years in a long correspondence with with the senior United States senator of Massachusetts, his good buddy Daniel Webster. They made a kind of parlor game. It lasted eight years of trying to conjure up crimes which should be cognizable by the federal courts, but Congress had not yet defined them as a crime. And the result is the first codified federal statute of crimes. It's known as the Crimes Act of 1825. It's only nine pages long. So a a federal crime bill in our time, uh, you need a hand truck to move it around. but it, was, it consisted of every crime that they could imagine that had not been yet specified by Congress, um, and uh, that took away the opportunity for guys like Coolidge to get away uh, with grand theft uh, on the high seas with impunity. Now, there are other relationships between the common law on the civil side uh, and, the, uh, and the law of the United States. That's a really long story. Shiber, Professor Scheiber said that I once shared a prize uh, which I did with a very good friend who teaches at the New York Law School. And he, uh, he's written uh, three books on this issue, uh, the question of Swift and Tyson and the question of Erie and the, new, and, uh, the Erie Railroad and um, what's, ha, ha, Tompkins, yes, Tompkins and the Erie Railroad. 
and it's an incredibly long, complex, and in the end, uh, not very, not very exciting story. The second question is, what accounts for Brennan's rediscovery of the Jeffersonian new libertarian tradition uh, of, uh, uh, of 1800 uh, as late as 1965 in the New York Times and Sullivan case? And the answer is that at issue in the New York Times and Sullivan was an editorial published in the New York Times by Harry Belafonte and a great number of other African-American intellectuals and, advoc- uh, and activists. Um, that made a lot of denunciations of what the Alabama police uh, had been doing in Birmingham. And there was a lot of stuff that was wrong. Like they said, the, the police had encircled Alabama State. Well, God, there was just a few people like at Sather Gate uh, and maybe somebody over, over on Hearst. They, they hadn't completely encircled it. Uh, so there were these errors of fact. <clears throat> um, and that meant that they could not rely on a truth defense. And moreover... Um, the jury would have control, and these were 12 white guys, listened to a lawsuit fired, filed, filed by this guy Sullivan, who was on the uh, Board of Supervisors of Birmingham. Uh, this was a slam dunk that they were going to bring in a verdict of liability, and indeed, I think the New York Times' total liability at, at the time of that lawsuit uh, for um, uh, that, uh, that ad in various state court decisions uh, was many millions of dollars. So, um, they needed to say that Somebody needed to make a constitutional claim that a private libel could have such public consequences <clears throat> that it should be barred by the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. And they hired a guy named Herbert Wexler uh, who made that argument. And the way he did it was he said, <clears throat> the practical effects of this lawsuit in Alabama are just like the practical effects of the Sedition Act prosecutions in 1798. And what he did was link... <clears throat> this sedition crime from the 18th century to uh, the 20th century reality of the 1960s, uh, and Brennan went for it hook, line, and sinker, and I think probably had more fun writing that opinion than he had writing any other opinion he wrote during his long and distinguished career on the Supreme Court. Thank you very much, Professor McCurdy. Thank you all for being here, and enjoy the reception. Thank you, Charles. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.